Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we meet a man who spent nearly a year posting videos to TikTok, all with one goal, to appear on the long-running hit TV show CSI. He actually succeeded. So what role was he given and how did he land it? It's quite the story. Doctors in Alberta are sounding the alarm about something they're starting to see more of. Fueled by misinformation, people refusing to consent to certain procedures such as blood transfusions if the donor has received a COVID-19 vaccine. We find out just how common it is and how physicians are trying to tackle the problem. We talk job burnout and how focusing on the experience of the worker could be the wrong approach. It's one we've tried for a very long time. Instead, we should be looking to prevent it from happening in the first place. Sounds simple. But it's more challenging than you might expect. But first, there is a heavyweight labor battle going on in Ontario right now as the province moves to impose a new contract on 55,000 education workers and their union using the notwithstanding clause to short-circuit any move to the courts to oppose it. The union says the workers will walk out on Friday anyway. Who will blink first? We're going to start tonight in Ontario because there is a high-stakes game of labor relations. Who will blank first? Blink first, not blank first. Blink first going on in that province tonight. And caught in the middle of it, middle of it all, of course, are many school kids and their parents hoping it will be resolved before too much, if any, schooling is lost. Who's to blame? Well, that all depends on who you listen to. Here's how it. Here's what's happening. The union representing some 55,000 education workers, that staff like education assistants, administrative staff, custodians, the people who keep your kids' school working and clean, they're looking for a raise through the union of roughly 11.7% a year in a new contract. Now, that seems like a lot, but they've had their salaries capped for a while. They've been losing money for the past several years. And of course, they don't want to lose any more money. Inflation, we know where it is. Why would you take a, a raise that was below inflation? It means you're working for less year after year. So the province came back with 2.5% a year if you made more than $43,000, 1.5% a year if you're above that. So you can see where the collision is coming. They're far apart. So the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE, gave strike notice on Sunday. On Monday, yesterday, the province imposed a new deal on the workers, imposed it, and invoked the notwithstanding clause, preventing it from being challenged in the courts. I get the sense they see a political winner here and they couldn't be bothered. They couldn't be bothered. They're either too lazy or they couldn't be bothered to make it charter compliant. Like, why bother, right? Why bother if it's a political winner? Why bother? Just ignore the charter. Let's use the notwithstanding clause in advance. Who cares, right? Well, people do care. Um, of course, the Ford government says this is all about the kids. Of course, they do. They even call the thing the Keeping Students in Class Act, not the Let's Take Away the Rights of the Lowest Paid Workers Keeping Our Schools Running Act. Um, which they could have, because either of them are true. Uh, but Premier Ford said in question period today, the government is indeed looking out for the children. We're making sure that the students stay in class. I'm going to repeat that. They're going to stay in class. We want parents to know that we're doing everything we can to make sure students don't miss one single day in class. Right. And that includes taking away the rights of your workers, right? Which, of course, you may or may not agree with, but that's what's being done. So the union said, you know what? Forget it. We're walking out anyway. All 55,000 workers will walk out on Friday illegally now. They face fines of $4,000 a person each day. And the union faces $500,000 a day in fines. Several school boards, of course, including the Toronto District School Board, one of the biggest in the country, have said they will close schools on Friday because there's going to be a massive protest 
not only the people walking out, but also in solidarity with them. And in Ottawa today, as expected, a chorus of high-profile liberals, federal liberals, from the Justice Minister on, including the Prime Minister, um, and he has a pretty good relationship with Doug Ford, uh, says that all politicians need to uh, not overuse the notwithstanding clause to suspend people's rights. Using the notwithstanding clause to suspend workers' rights um, is wrong. I know that, that collective bargaining negotiations are sometimes difficult, but it has to happen. It has to be done in a respectful, thoughtful way at the bargaining table. Well, joining me now with more on this is Eric Tucker. He's a professor emeritus at Osgoode Law School at York University, specializing in labor and employment law. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Um, there's an old term, using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. I'm not sure it's suitable here, but it feels like it a bit. I mean, this is this is a this is some pretty uh, this is some pretty tough legislation. Uh, yes, it is. It's really quite uh, uh, unprecedented, or almost unprecedented for a government uh, to invoke the notwithstanding clause in order to uh, pass uh, back-to-work legislation and insulate it uh, from being reviewed by the courts, in effect saying, we don't care whether or not it's constitutional or not, uh, we're going to go ahead and do this. Uh, so yeah, no, it's it's not something we've seen governments do uh, previously. Now, we understand that public, uh, the public sector are in their contract negotiations now. There are clearly because of the cost of living and so forth, there are wage demands that perhaps we hadn't seen in the past. At least the scale of the wage demands is pretty high. Um, but what's going on here exactly? Because it didn't feel like it was, I mean, they were far apart, no doubt. Um, but it didn't, was this the right, right move at this stage of the game for both the province and for the union and for QP? Right. So, you know, it's there are a lot of issues here to, to unpack. Uh, obviously, uh, for public sector workers, uh, particularly public sector workers in, in Ontario, remember, they're coming off uh, three years of wage restraint. Uh, so for the past three years, right, there was legislation that limited them to uh, 1% annual increases uh, at a time uh, when inflation was running higher than that. So effectively, uh, they've been subject to wage cuts over the past three years. Uh, inflation, as we all know, is running considerably higher now, uh, 6 to 7%, I believe, uh, and it's projected to uh, run 3 to 4% uh, uh, in, in 2023. Uh, so uh, obviously, this is a situation in which uh, unions that now have their opportunity to bargain uh, were looking to sort of catch up uh, for some of the wage losses that they've suffered and, and to insulate themselves from suffering from further uh, wage losses as a result of inflation. Uh, so that's why, you know, why the wage demand might to some of uh, your listeners seem high. It has to be viewed uh, in, in contextually. Uh, on the other hand, the Ontario government has made it absolutely clear Right, that they're in terms of public sector compensation, uh, they're uh, pursuing what has been characterized as an austerity program, uh, trying to significantly limit uh, pay for public sector workers effectively to cut uh, their compensation uh, costs. Uh, and indeed, uh, some of your listeners may have heard an interview with 
uh, the Minister of Education, Stephen Wache, where he made it absolutely clear that the position that the Ontario government is taking in this negotiation is designed to uh, make it clear to the teachers' unions, who are also negotiating, uh, that they're going to face a pretty uh, 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 you know, tough uh, position at the bargaining table from this government. And thus the reason why uh, the Canadian Union of Public Employees has said, you know, we're going to walk out anyway, because this feels like this is the first, this is a big battle in what is going to be a tough winter, I would think, or a tough, uh, tough series of negotiations. So that's why we're seeing, because it feels like if you weren't watching closely, it feels like this all went to the brink very quickly. It did, uh, you know, because, you know, generally speaking, right, uh, in collective bargaining, uh there are a number of stages that the parties go through uh, before they reach an impasse. Uh, so one of them, of course, is to take a strike vote, uh, which the union did at the time. The um, Minister of Labor thought that that was regrettable, but that's perfectly normal in, in industrial relations. Uh, and then when they didn't reach agreement, right, they gave notice. Now, most uh, uh, many, many collective bargaining, uh, you know, uh, situations settle, uh, go to the, go to the brink. Uh, you know, they only settle when, uh, uh, they're at the verge of either going on a strike or having a lockout. So uh, the Ontario government, in a sense, preemptively tried to uh, stop that, I suppose, by enacting this legislation before they got to the brink. Now, the parties still have the opportunity to bargain and reach a deal before Friday. I don't know what the possibilities are, but it has clearly uh, escalated uh, very, very quickly in this situation. Public opinion can often matter in these cases. I mean, it doesn't matter to the letter of the law, but the letter of the law has been been pushed away, we gather in this case, with the use of the nonwithstanding clause. Uh, how important is public opinion here? And, and how politically savvy do you think the government is being here when it comes to negotiating in this way with, you know, clearly parents right. in Ontario would like to see their kids stay in school, right? Right. So, you know, there's no doubt that there is, you know, parents are, you know, they've had a pretty tough a uh, couple of years, right, with uh, the consequences of COVID. And so I'm sure nobody welcomes uh, another disruption uh, to the education system. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the government has taken quite a heavy hand in trying to address it. They, they you know, even if they were enacting back-to-work legislation, uh, they could have... Uh, uh, adopted, rather than imposing uh, a collective agreement, which is in effect what they're doing, the normal thing we do in Canada uh, when there's back-to-work legislation or where essential services workers don't have the right to strike is to say, well, we'll send all outstanding matters uh, to uh, an arbitrator, mm -hmm. uh, a neutral third party, who will look at the party's positions and come up with what they think is a fair deal. Uh, in this case, not only have they legislated Ontario, uh, 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 you know, workers back to work, but they've imposed a collective agreement on them. And they've said, and we don't care whether or not we've trampled uh, your fundamental rights and freedoms in doing so. And I think that doesn't play well uh, politically. Now, of course, this government is in a very, very strong position, right? They were recently reelected. And so they perhaps don't have to worry. Uh, too much in the short term about the political fallout uh, from this particular measure. But I don't think it's one that uh, will, I think it will be seen 
by a large number of Ontario voters as being a very heavy-handed approach uh, to dealing with this situation. You look at what kind of impact this could have outside of Ontario. I know that, as you mentioned, you know, different provinces are in different situations, different parties are in different situations when it comes to when they have to face voters again. But people must be watching what Ontario is up to because every province faces something similar in the not too distant future, which is public sector unions wanting, you know, cost of living increases and the cost of living is high. Uh, You know, public sector collective bargaining has always uh, been uh, contentious, more contentious at some times. Uh, than others, uh, and likely to become, uh, you know, contentious as we see in Ontario because of the inflation and the uh, rising cost of living and the uh, desire of unions when they have, remember, unions bargain a collective agreement maybe once every three years. You know, they have this limited opportunity, right, to try to protect their members uh, redress losses that they've suffered because of unanticipated uh, uh, inflation that has eroded their wages, and also looking forward, right, to uh, try to ensure that they don't suffer uh, further losses. So there is going to be uh, pressure, right, from unions to seek, you know, wage increases that are perhaps larger than what we're accustomed to seeing in recent uh, years. Uh, and, you know, how different governments will respond, obviously, is going to vary enormously, depending, uh, certainly in part, right, on the political orientation uh, of that government. So, uh, you know, what we're seeing in Ontario, of course, is an example of a conservative government uh, that uh, has never had much patience, I think, for uh, public sector uh, collective bargaining, as we know, already had previously imposed three years uh, of wage restraint on the public sector and the broader public sector. Uh, and certainly conservative governments in other provinces likely to have similar reactions, although it's not at all clear to me that other uh, governments will be so quick uh, to enact legislation like this that imposes uh, uh, a uh, settlement on the uh, on the union and then says, and you can't challenge this. So we're going to do this notwithstanding the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, because... It's a pretty dramatic statement, right, in the context uh, of what are, I think, uh, understandings, generally accepted understandings, uh, that it should only be in the most extraordinary cases. Sorry, I'm going no, it's on. All right. so, so what next here in Ontario? Because I gather, that there, is there recourse at this point in time? Could anything change? Right now, we're headed towards QP walks out on, or at least the educators walk out on Friday, right. or that, that that part of the bargain of uh, QP walks out on Friday. Uh, the government's going to start fining them. Uh, is there anything that could change? Is there any way for this to be challenged? Well, it can't be challenged, but of course, you know, uh, between now and Friday, it's also possible that the parties will go back to the table and uh, reach a deal. Yeah, a game of labor relations chicken going on here, right down to the wire. Uh, Eric Tucker, thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a really, really interesting story. You may have seen it. It's been covered covered quite a bit uh, because it's a really interesting story. Um, so there's this uh, gentleman in Kentucky um, who's a big CSI fan. And when CSI appears this week, when this week's episode, the original one set in Las Vegas, you know that one, when it airs this week, he'll be on it. And he went to great lengths to make his way onto the show. Now, he really hadn't done any acting before. He hadn't been around or in front of or even behind the cameras before, really. 
when he embarked on a bit of a mission, well, about a year ago now. So Josh Bailey is a restaurant manager in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. That's not far from Louisville. It's not far from Fort Knox, actually. You may remember that one. Now, he decided he would try to see if he could get himself cast on CSI to play a so-called unalive character, basically a corpse. There are always those on CSI. If you've watched the show, of course, you know. Um, he said about shooting daily videos of himself playing dead, so to speak, uh, all around the area he lives in. Uh, he lay prone against riverbanks, propped himself up against trees. He was in cars. He was under things. He was in the creek. He had his dogs around. He was across sidewalks. He was in town. He was everywhere. Um, and then he posted them all to TikTok. Here's what he did very early on. Have a listen. Day 15 of playing unalive until I'm cast in a movie or TV show as an unalive body. Day 15. Okay, so let's fast forward a bit. Day 63 of playing unalive until I'm cast in a movie or TV show as an unalive body. <laughs> so now he's up to day 63. Well, on day 320 or 321 it was, he gets an email from the CSI team inviting him on the show to ply his newfound expertise in a quote-unquote unliving role. Well, that episode airs on Thursday this week. So we thought we'd head to Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Again, population about 30,000, right near the famous Fort Knox, to find out how Josh Nally struck gold. And uh, Josh Nally, the man behind Living Dead Josh, if you're ever on TikTok, that's the handle, Living Dead Living underscore dead underscore Josh joins me now. Thanks for your time. Thank you. So are you a big CSI fan just to, from the get-go, or do you like those kinds of shows in particular? I mean, that was the original CSIs. And, yeah. But, you know, they, yeah. they started this new one. It's a really good series so far. So, I mean, I remember reading years ago, the actors in New York, it was kind of a, a big deal to play a, to play the corpse on Law & Order. And I can imagine it's kind of a big deal on CSI as well, but what gave you the idea that that was something you wanted to do? Oh, I, don't, I think it just came out of uh, trying to find something to do with my free time and uh, just trying to find humor, something that was kind of humorous, but a little bit offbeat. It certainly is. So so then you must have thought for a while, well, how, how do I get this to work, right? So then you thought, okay, videos, TikTok, which is a great idea. How did you, how did you get to that? Uh, it came at like I, I was a longtime scroller of TikTok. I think a lot of people did during the pandemic. And then, uh, you know, I kept on seeing some people out there that was like getting some recognition off of just doing some out of the ordinary thing. So I'm like, let me give this a shot and see if I can't do it this way. What was that first video? I mean, it's not easy, right? What was that first video like? Uh, it it was It wasn't bad. I think the, the major part was like, I expected the creek that I went to to be more empty than I was. That's right. But it's in a creek. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a popular place to take your dogs to go swimming. And uh, but it was October, so I figured it'd be empty. And more people, or people kept on coming by. So like I had to do it in between people trying coming by, and you know I didn't want them to be uh, um, startled or surprised by what I was doing. I was going to say, have you ever startled anyone with it? I notice a lot of the times when you do them, they're in pretty, what look like pretty set up and it's, it's pretty private, but it can't always be. 
No, I actually uh, I have posted it to my account. There is a I was on my front porch one night and uh, a car drove by and checked. Uh, stopped and asked if I was okay. Of course, I had a mouthful of fake blood at the time, and I, I could, didn't want to spit that out and alarm them anymore. But I sat up and kind of nodded my head, and they drove off. What um, what do people around you think? I mean, it's been you've been doing this for a year now, or you had been doing it for a year. What did the people around you think of the idea? Well, my my friends and family they they find it hilarious. They've been in a lot of my friends have been in my TikToks and uh, or helped me out with them and my coworkers. I think they're getting a little bit tired of hearing about it now, but they they laugh at it, and a lot of my employees laugh at it and follow me. That's right. Um... When did you so so this was all about trying to get on to CSI you thought to to play this uh, to play a a corpse um did you ever give up hope that the phone call would come i mean you did it for quite a while right no i mean i, I never really i never really expected it to work so i don't think there was ever that like all this ain't going to work like i was having fun with it so as long as i was having fun i was going to keep doing it so then you get the phone call how did that happen? Oh, it was, it was actually an email. They uh, or an email. Yeah, yeah, I guess I kept on popping up on CSI's uh, for you page, and they commented on one of my videos. And then a couple days later, they sent me an email and said, "Would you be interested in being a corpse on uh, CSI?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, definitely, definitely." Did so you? Pl- they, I mean, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. They flew me out to Los Angeles, and I was out there for about four days, and. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, you must have at first pitched yourself thinking this can't be real. Yeah. I, I, I think I set my phone down. I was at work when it happened. I set my phone down and uh, walked away from it for a second. And I, I think I actually Googled the person who had sent me the email to make sure they were legit. <laughs> You'd want to, right? You'd want yeah. to. So tell me about getting out there. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's Hollywood, right? Yeah. The, I mean, I was right there. Um, right in the middle of Hollywood, never been to California before, never been Los Angeles or anywhere out there. So, uh, yeah, they flew me out and we, uh, we were, we filmed the, the first day we went around Hollywood and parts of Los Angeles filmed TikToks for my account. And then the next day we were actually on set where I was in makeup for about two and a half hours and I filmed for about five hours, five hours. So that's yeah. a lot of that's a lot of work, right? I mean, it's more work than one would expect. Uh, I mean, it wasn't really too much work because I was just laying on a metal table for that five hours. So, still, that's a long time to lie on a metal table. Yeah, it, it wasn't bad because they they kept on checking on me, make sure I was okay, and you know, in between the takes, they would check on me and the the actors, and they kept on uh, we we were having conversations about stuff. What a. How was it to meet everyone? I mean, I, um, Mario Van Peoples directed, is that right? So you got to meet, yeah. you got to meet some big names. Yeah, I was a little starstruck with Mario Van Peebles. Uh, like um, at one point, like I'd already, they had already got me into the position I was supposed to be in, and he came up and he was like, "Hey, I'm Mario Van Peebles," and I'm like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> trying not to just try and play cool. And Matt Lowry, he's one of the leads on the show. He was really cool. We talked about Jeeps because he had just bought one and. I guess he had seen my Jeep and my TikTok because it shows up quite often. So we sat there and talked about Jeeps for a good 15 minutes in between the resets. 
So, Josh, did, did a lot of the actors know you already just from the had seen your videos? I, I think they uh, like warned them that I was coming in. So a lot of them went and searched my TikToks and that's how they knew me. And how did you how would you rate? I mean, we, we'll, we'll see on on on, uh, on Thursday, but how would you rate your performance in, in, in the grand scheme of all the different times you've done this? I mean, out of a 10 out of 10, I have to say is a 9.5. Okay. I haven't seen it myself yet, so I can't really <laughs> rate it yet. I heard uh, I saw an article that we, where someone from the show was interviewed and said you were the best prepared dead body they had ever had on the show. Well, I'd hope so. I did it uh, 321 days before, <laughs> so yeah. a lot of practice. Yeah. So overall, how how was that experience to go out there and actually do it? It must have been um, when you think back to it, it must have been great. And now you're getting ready for the episode to be on, which is going to be more more amazing. It was surreal. I mean, like just seeing behind the scenes and uh, seeing the makeup get applied. I mean, the the makeup artists were themselves like they they're artists. They they were masters at their crafts, and it was a uh, it surreal. I mean, like just to fly me out, a little old Kentucky boy myself, and never done anything like this. It was a totally different world, and it's a a memory that I'll carry with me forever. Yeah, no kidding. What about I mean, you you manage a restaurant, right? So you have your staff there. What did everyone think when all of a sudden you turned these TikTok videos into a you know a trip to LA and an actual appearance on the real show? It, I think they, they they I mean they're they're proud of me and happy for me. And it, it was funny because I just got back from vacation, and I was like, um, I'm leaving for another week. I mean, I, I hadn't been back two weeks, and I'm like, I'm going on another vacation, and they're like what i'm like i'm going to california and that's pretty much all i can say right now and they're like right. oh, okay you couldn't tell them yeah did they but guess did they ever it, figure it out they 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 knew to a degree they didn't know what to to what degree they they knew why i was going there but not for what show or they didn't know any details specifically so what's the plan for Thursday night then? What are you going to do? You all you get get everyone together and and watch? Yeah, a couple of my friends and family we're going to get together at my work, uh, and a couple of the employees are going to get get together and we're going to watch it. Are you excited? I am. I can't wait to see it. Are you worried at all? I mean, no, not no. not at all. No. no, I noticed that in the countdown. Uh, for listeners, Living Dead Josh is where you can find the account on TikTok. That in the countdown, you've been doing sort of a, a tribute to both all the videos you made beforehand, but also the countdown to the show. Um, are you going to continue making the videos? Do you think? Have you thought of hanging up the? Uh, well, I don't know what you'd hang up, but have you thought of hanging it up? <laughs> no, uh, my my followers uh, they've they've been pretty vocal that they want me to continue. So I think I'll continue. I think I'll. Maybe try to land another role somewhere, or maybe maybe uh, eventually I'll become an Easter egg and just pop up in random movies or TV shows, and people be like, "Oh, that, that's the guy from TikTok." There's Josh now, yeah. And and you've if you had you've had some other offers, right? Or at least other people have approached you since. Uh, not yet. No. I'm still waiting. Wow. So when you look back at this whole thing from just an idea that you had, and all of a sudden here you are, it must be, it must be a bit surreal. It's very surreal. I mean, from going from, uh, well, about this time last year to now I'm sitting here doing interviews left and right and about to be on a major network. Yeah. It's very surreal. There's a lesson in there somewhere, isn't there, Josh, that, that if you have a good idea and you do it right, yeah. 
follow These it days, and yeah. be persistent at it. I think uh, that's the key is persistence. And then, you know, if you have that ideal, you have that ambition, eventually you're going to get noticed for it. You, and it helps that the videos are very good, by the way, right? Like you do do a Thank good you. job. You do do a good job. It wasn't just, it wasn't random. I think a lot of people might not have succeeded where you succeeded. Uh, thank you for that. It uh, it was a yeah. It, it was a lesson in uh, patience and. Uh, Did you have any experience at all in, in doing like art, like videos or stuff like that before? No, I've never no. never done anything like that. Like uh, I'm not really much on being in front of the camera, really, or behind the camera. I, you look at all my friends' wedding photos, and I'm the least one in there. So. <laughs> right. Well, Josh, congratulations. I look forward to seeing uh to seeing CSI Las Vegas on uh on the third. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, recently I saw an article I found really interesting. Um, Alberta physicians were raising the alarm about what they thought was a pretty dangerous trend fueled by that kind of misinformation. Uh, one that could potentially cost lives. One doctor shared a story about a patient recently refusing to consent to a blood transfusion if it came from a donor who had received the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, ultimately, that patient didn't need one, but still, that same doctor posted about it online, received replies from others who had been in similar situations. Um, By the way, when uh, you donate blood, your vaccine status is not listed. And it's not just, um, you know, it's not just individual cases either. It also involves kids uh, parents worried as well about these sorts of things. Dr. David Sidhu is an associate professor in the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary and the Southern Alberta Medical Lead for Transfusion and Transplant Medicine. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell me a bit about this because it does sound like perhaps the most extreme example one could think of when it comes to just how this kind of misinformation spreads. Uh, but what are you seeing and how common is it? I think that generally, you know, concern around blood and blood products has always been somewhat high. We've had uh, you know, a long history, uh, particularly in the early 80s of HIV and hepatitis leading to the Kreber Commission. And so there are sensitivities around blood and blood products. Um, I think it's been heightened with you know, some of this information that has been shared on social media and other sites as it relates to, you know, perhaps changes in people's genetic material somehow through this vaccine or other things that folks are concerned about. And so um, the concern from many of the patients that we see, some, you know, of course, are very legitimate, certainly parents um, who who want to know more about their the, the safety of the blood product. Um, particularly, we find in our bone marrow transplant patients, it's always a concern. And we we have that conversation with those parents and with those patients because we want to reassure them. Um, but I think overall, the, the the worry that we're seeing or the concern we're seeing um, is based on perhaps not the soundest of science. And when we try to have those conversations with patients, we want to make sure we're giving them the most accurate information possible to make these decisions as to whether to transfuse or not. I understand in those situations, it's very, str- I mean, you know this much better than I do. It's very stressful for patients. It's certainly stressful for parents of, ch- of children who are patients, no doubt. Um, and no, and obviously they've gone out to try to do as much research as they can while this is happening. 
What do you do then to try to reason or reason is maybe not the right word, but at least have that conversation with patients who may have ideas that you don't think are, are necessarily based on fact? Well, we have to remember that everyone's medical decision-making is ultimately their choice. You know, we, we, we cannot have a, a um, uh, uh, treatments forced on patients in, in any way. Uh, and, and so the best thing we can do in all of those circumstances typically is to, to just be open to having the conversations. We, we have, you know, the most accurate or the most current information available and we were willing to share that information and, and talk through it in detail with patients. Um, and the hope is, you know, once, once they hear all of the facts or at least the, the current science, they're, they're willing to, to listen and, um, and, and perhaps uh, keep an open mind, uh, despite what they may have been hearing. And honestly, that's, that's probably the best we can do when it comes to um, dealing with patients who have these concerns. Yeah, where, I mean, you must look around to try to figure out where these concerns come from, see where the, you must ask them where they got the information. Uh, you'd have to. Where, where is this information coming from, do you think? Yeah, it's true. It, you know, it is the first impulse to ask whether, you know, where, 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 where did they hear this? Or, you know, sometimes you know, I'm, I'm curious myself to, 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 to review the, the information. Um, it inevitably is different sources for different people. Um, or, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be just social media or the internet. It, it, it can be conversations with friends and concerns they've seen. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, the, the idea that blood and blood products are, are, are potentially dangerous or could spread disease is not ultimately wrong. We are very careful in, in who we select to receive blood products, and we typically don't provide transfusions lightly. Uh, honestly, it, it is in those circumstances of, of, of life and limb. And that is what my, my colleague was dealing with. The concern is that, you know, making these decisions ahead of these surgeries and other big procedures without all of the information available uh, can be detrimental because we don't have a lot of options if there is a significant bleed in a surgical operation um, and, and that patient has opted not to accept blood products. Uh, there's not much um, physicians can do in those very um, urgent situations. Yeah, I'm, that's what I. That's where I was going with this. I mean, this could be a matter of life and death. I mean, it doesn't necessarily, you know, all those things coming together in that sort of a situation may may not be particularly likely. But as you point out, it's not it's not impossible that these things collide and you end up with a with a with a terrible situation in your hands. And the the bigger issue for us, of course, is whenever folks ask, you know, it's not necessarily I don't want blood from a individual who has been vaccinated um, necessarily. Or when we when we, as you correctly pointed out at the at the, the top of this conversation, that Canadian Blood Services doesn't track uh, vaccination status for donors. Well, then inevitably the next question is, well, then I want blood from. Uh, this person that I know is not vaccinated. And so that creates actually more dangers because now we have what we call directed donations. And so this is a deviation from 
how blood is collected and how blood is stored for this particular person that needs to be quarantined and held separate in a separate inventory system. And every time we deviate from our, our standard operating procedures, there's always the potential for human error, the potential for mix-up and other additional issues. And so when that occurs, we're not just endangering you know, potentially that patient, but a, a mix-up in blood could occur for another patient as well. And so these are there's a bit of a slippery slope when it comes to this. And we need folks to understand that um, it has more of an impact than just on, on their medical decision-making. Broadly speaking, when you look at the history of, I mean, I remember back to the tainted blood scandal, anyone who was around in the 80s can't help but forget it. Um, you know, certainly, even when I lived in England, I remember coming back to Canada, not being able to donate blood because of BSE. And there were, you know, the, the way of protecting the blood supply has become very, you know, it's become quite stringent over the, over many years for for good reason. Um, but what is what is the reaction? I mean, what is the relationship between vaccination and blood donation? I never even thought about it, to be honest, until I read these articles. Well, honestly, most uh, most folks who are coming out to donate blood tend to, first they have to pass a, a donor questionnaire. Uh, and of course, part of that is exactly as you pointed out, questions around uh, travel to to potentially areas of uh, endemic disease, or, or being in England in the eighties when uh, when uh, the uh, bovine encephalopathy cases came out, and so many of our donors tend to be quite vigilant of their health, right. and uh, mm-hmm. I would almost argue are more likely to be vaccinated, frankly, uh, than unvaccinated. Um, now that 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 might be more anecdotal than than statistical, but I, I suspect it's probably accurate. So, I think you know the Canadian blood supply is 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 very safe. There's there are places in the world where where blood is is less safe, and there's concerns around the safety of blood, and that's where people tend to ask for specific individuals to donate for them. Um, but again, as I mentioned, that can lead to problems. And so we, we just need to reassure patients of the safety of the blood supply. There's no medical or scientific evidence currently to suggest there's any changes in people's blood or, or uh, blood antigens or, or genetics when it comes to COVID vaccines or RNA vaccines. That's not anything that's ever been scientifically documented. And so we, I, I think we just need to continue to reassure and, and, and follow the evidence. If, if something new comes out, you know, physicians will watch that and will, will, will take that into account. Um, if if this, this evidence changes, we will, of course, have to change the safety measures we take around blood and blood products. But as it stands today, the, the current science suggests it is safe. How has it been on the on the transfusion and transplant or the transplant side, really? And and how are you how are you making out now? So um, you know, it's important to remember that none of the transplant surgeries over the course of the pandemic were delayed. Uh, similarly, many of the cancer surgeries as well. All of those were prioritized, um, and so they all went forward. However, I think. We are seeing a bit of a backlog, not not necessarily due to surgical cancellations or delays when it came to transplant surgeries or cancer surgeries, uh, but more as a result of 
people not getting in to see their physicians or maybe being right. too afraid to come into hospital and, and, and not get getting diagnosed, out. right? Not getting diagnosed, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we've, we have found them coming in at a higher stage and, and higher grade, and that has made the surgeries that they need much more urgent. And so accommodating those surgeries has, has become uh, a challenge. And I think that maybe is where the backlog is perhaps coming from the most. You're getting more urgent cases than you would have if uh, sort of people had been diagnosed more frequently, more regularly, uh, as they had been in the past. Yes, that's right. They, we would have seen more of a steady flow as opposed to perhaps uh, a, a little bit of a delay. And because they are coming in sicker, and they need their surgeries more urgently. And, and, and sometimes because they're higher stage or higher grade, the surgery we now have to do is going to be that much more complex. And of course, that, you know, that, that has added consequences for the patient's recovery, for their time in hospital, which affects the availability of beds for uh, new patients after them. And so there is, there is a knock-on effect. I do agree. Yeah, are you seeing it all through the system? I mean, we know how much we read uh, daily or hear all the time about how much pressure everyone's healthcare systems are under right now, not just Alberta's. Um, are you seeing impacts of that as well when it comes to what you do? I think so. I, there is certainly an element of burnout. We see it with our all of our frontline staff. Um, I think the sheer volume of patients um, that we saw over the pandemic, in addition to all of the patients that were, 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 were sick and, and could not be delayed during the pandemic, probably added to the, the stress and the workload for, for um, many healthcare workers, whether they're in BC or Alberta or anywhere in Canada, frankly. And I think that relentless pressure has certainly taken a toll. We are seeing folks leaving the profession or at least having to to find alternative work within healthcare that's not as stressful. And, and so losing talent or experience like that, um, particularly uh, in the front lines, is, is always a challenge. And it must be tough in your shoes, too, because you're losing people who you have trust in who know what they're doing, right, which is always difficult. It is. Once you've built a team, there's a, you know, I, I read an article recently where the, uh, the it was a first-person piece uh, by a healthcare worker talking about the ballet or the dance um, when it comes to patient care. And it is very much like that when you're in urgent situations. Um, everybody on the team has a has a job, and you, you can trust that they know what they're doing and things are being taken care of in the background. And um, that's less easy to do with, with new trainees and new individuals. It, it will get there. But, it, you know, it introduces elements of risk um, that, that experience would have not created um, before the pandemic. And I guess there are, no, there are no magic bullets here, right? There are no magic solutions to all this? No, it's a, I think the, the, the trick here when it comes to healthcare is it's, it's complex systems management. You, you touch something over in this part of the web, and it has unintended consequences over here that you could never have predicted. And I think that's that's the the tricky bit for people to, to grasp. It seems like everyone would like a simple solution or <laughs> if if you know if it makes a good political sound bite, then a simple solution always sounds good. Um, but 
nobody considers all of the other unintended consequences that come from changes or even shifting resources to, to, to one area or another. Uh, and I, I don't envy uh, the politicians or the health ministers or, or, or really anyone who has to deal with the administrative uh, management of our healthcare system in any of our provinces in the country at this point. It is a complex organism, the healthcare system, uh, needless to say. Dr. Sidhu, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Speaking of work, much, of course, is said about burnout these days. It often focuses on the experience of the worker. Um, you know, cynicism about the workplace, self negative self-esteem. I'm sure many of you have been there before when you simply don't feel like you could get out of bed and go to that job one more day. We're getting better at figuring out how to cope with it, but often it's the wrong wrong approach. We sort of focus on the person themselves. What happened to them? How do you help them? Whereas often the problem is much bigger than that. So they go away for a while, then they come back. And oftentimes the real problem, what led to the burnout in the first place, the stresses that really caused the issue are still there. So what would be a more effective way of tackling what is a very costly problem? Speaking of labor shortages, a very costly problem in this country in more ways than one. Joining me now is Dr. Michael Leiter. He's an organizational psychologist and consultant. He's also the co-author of the Burnout Challenge. Thanks for your time. Great to be here. Uh, this is a topic we talk about a lot. I think there's a lot of theories out there as to why we're seeing what we're seeing. But just how much impact is uh, burnout having? on Canadian employees and employers? Alberta has a very big impact. It is takes away a lot of the energy and enthusiasm that people have for their work. And um, it is uh, something that has become more intense as people actually have started thinking through work in a much more thoroughgoing way. I think the uh, changes over the last couple of years have gotten people to reflect on this a lot. And, uh, it's making a big difference in terms of uh, how people want to work, where they want to work, and when they want to work. As an organizational psychologist, it must be um, it must be there's a lot of fodder, a lot of grist for the mill in 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 this topic for you. Oh, that very much is like I, it, it, as an organizational psychologist, you're often hearing that well, we can't change that. Our organizations can only do so much. We can only change. A little bit at a time. And then with the pandemic back in March, April of 2020, organizations changed the nature of work in a huge and thoroughgoing fashion and demonstrated that with the right conditions, work can change very much, very quickly. And it does have impact on people when they do it. So can we change in a way that has really positive impact on people from those changes? Yeah, where there's a will, right? Um, you you look into something called the mismatch model, which is interesting because I, I think one of the things that you pointed out in the book that that rings true to me is that oftentimes burnout is identified as the who. Why did that person burn out as opposed to the why? Why, why generally did that person burn out? So it's, we make it very personal when in fact we should probably be looking at it more broadly. I think, yes, we look at it very much as a relationship issue, the relationship of a person with their work, with their workplace. And that comes down often to relationships of people with other people, um, particularly the supervisor, but their colleagues, uh, their clients, whoever they're interacting with. And the nature of that interaction 
in terms of things like how much autonomy, how much uh, micromanagement you're dealing with, uh, as well as just the quality of do you feel that you're being respected as a valued member of that community? Those kinds of things are very big when it comes to determining whether people have that engagement and enthusiasm for their work. Yeah, if you walk through the mismatch model a bit, because I gather there are—is it six or seven uh, criteria to it? But it, it, they all of them make 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 perfect sense when it comes to why uh, employees or even managers, for that matter, may run into problems at work when there's imbalances. Right. We look at this six areas of work life, and uh, we start with workload, and workload is certainly a big, important piece of it. Both the amount of work how much it spills over into the rest of your day, as well as just how complicated it is, how emotionally charged. All of that is a package that has to do with workload. And is that matching up with what the person wants to bring in terms of their time and talent and energy and commitments to their work? So that is sort of a a pivotal kind of mismatch when it's not working right, it really can lead to exhaustion and people right. being really worn out. And that's but, kind of the, um, the common one, right? Yeah. Over Overwork, workload, we often think of that as really, we think of that as burnout uh, in its very yes. definition. Yeah. But right. there are other it's things. Fair, yeah. and th- there are others, yes. And it's, it, it, it is important. You have to look at that. But just as important are things about control. Do you feel like you actually can make some meaningful decisions about when and how and whatever you work? Uh, the sense of reward, both appreciation as well as finances, uh, and that sense of community I mentioned before. People want to be part of a real community and be cherished by it. Uh, this, the fifth one is fairness. So are you being treated fairly and with respect at work. And the sixth one that pulls a lot together has to do with values. Uh, are your values and your employer's values, are they aligned? Are you doing work such that the more that you're you know, going to what your employer wants you to do, the more you're doing what you want to do? Or are you going in different directions that way? It's important it, issues. It is. I mean, um, and you mentioned it earlier, but we have seen a real change over the last few years, uh, you know, probably provoked in many ways by the pandemic, but also working at home uh, and how much that's changed the workplace. Uh, when you look at, at just how much this issue of, first of all, the impact on burnout period seems to have been pretty significant um, as well, because those that work-life uh, divide melted away, but also just people's reassessing how they want to work, who they want to work for. You must have seen a big change over the past few years. It was a big change, and it was quite mixed depending on what you're doing. For some people, things grew in intensity, particularly frontline health people, uh, a lot, a lot of work, a lot of, uh, you know, risk involved in it that wasn't there before, the need to change a lot of procedures and work outside of your comfort area. A lot of that was driving that sense of exhaustion and cynicism and, and, and discouragement that is really the hallmark. Of, of burnout. Uh, in other contexts, uh, some people, you know, a lot of people were directed to work at home, uh, and that was a strain for some people, but other people loved it. They uh, took out the commute, they didn't have to deal with some of the annoying people they had to deal with before at the job. Uh, there are a lot of people thought that working at home thing, a pretty good idea. And uh, and now we've got this problem, well, what happens when your employer wants to pull you back to the workplace again? 
Michael Leiter is with us. He's an organizational psychologist and consultant, co-author of the Burnout Challenge. And we're talking about burnout this half hour uh, and some of the, first of all, how to recognize it, what causes it, uh, the impact of it. But let's talk about how to fix it, because you bring up a lot of ideas in the mismatch model, which is which are interesting. And then you think, well, there are jobs where certain things such as um, autonomy or control sometimes aren't just, just aren't part of the, the job itself. So uh, where do you feel like employers have to do better, senior managers, but also employees have to sort of take a very good, hard, cold, realistic look at what it is they do and whether or not it satisfies the things that they need out of a job? It is, it, it is as we said, a relationship kind of problem. It's a breakdown in a relationship of people with their work. And with that, it means for both employers and for individuals to reflect on, well, what's going on with that relationship? Uh, too often, uh, these kinds of problems are, it's, it's sort of a bad boyfriend model. We say, well, you've got a, there's a problem here in our relationship. You better go, or you better go fix yourself. But no, it's something they need to work on together. And I think that uh, for individuals, one is to think about those six areas of work life that we were talking about. And what is it? that's going on across those areas. What's working for you? When you think about when you were having a really good time at work today, yesterday, last week, uh, what was going on? What were you doing? What were other people doing? What kind of interactions did you have? Uh, what was it like when it was going well? And uh, then you can contrast that with, well, what's it like when it's not going well? And what kinds of things are annoying you? What are the pebbles in your shoe that are giving you a problem? And and thinking that through uh, so that you know as an individual, what is the match you're looking for at work? And then for the employer side of the equation, uh, I, I think a big issue there is, again, for managers to have a clear idea of what is it that we're looking for from this person? What, what is productivity? What is a good contribution? I've, I've heard a lot of conversation, well, we got to get people back to work so they can have that creative whatever going on. And you know, well, I've been to a lot of workplaces and spent a lot of time at workplaces without a whole lot of creative whatever going on at all. It was Indeed. just sort of just being there. So yeah. how is that supposed to be working? What is it you exactly you want from people? And saying something like, well, we want to see creative juices flowing. It's not very convincing. So thinking those kinds of things through. So you know what really is critical and having the flexibility, uh, you know, so that particularly frontline managers having the flexibility that they can work with people to find a solution that really hums for you know, all involved. And finding a solution here and, and, and onto the management side of things, um, you know, I've been in organizations where there's a lot of emphasis on trying to fix this uh, without necessarily recognizing what the problem is, you know, sort of saying, well, workers are burning out. That means they have too much work or but oftentimes it's more subtle than that. And I, I wonder if, if in each situation as companies struggle to try to figure out how to, because the loss of productivity to burnout is huge. And and often, you know, you're talking about employees who are valuable and, and losing them once you've trained them is a huge expense to companies. It's a huge expense to the individual too, if they're not happy at work, once all this investment's been made and learning how to do the job. Um, what, what should organizations do to try to make sure that their attempts to solve this issue are genuine? Because oftentimes you talked about cynicism being one of the impacts of burnout. And oftentimes companies, I feel watching them from afar, sort of go on off on, you know, this huge crusade to try to make sure everyone's happy and our culture is great. 
but it belies the truth. And sometimes employees see right through that. And it adds to the cynicism and the burnout when you feel like your organization's talking out of the other side of their mouth. Right. Well, I think the, the approach that we talk about in the book is one, getting a good assessment of what's going on with across those areas of work life and how that's related to people's experience of those core dimensions of burnout, of exhaustion, of cynicism, and discouragement. But then having a framework where once you identify that this particular work group has a real problem with uh, with control, that people have a, some day-to-day decisions and how their team is getting the work done, and they keep running into administrative bumps that slow them down, and, and it just seems very inefficient and annoying from their point of view. Um, then you get some kind of facilitated process going on so that that work group can solve that problem, can say, what is it that's getting in our way? What is really the value of this? How can we minimize the number of steps it takes to like approve overtime or to bring in some more resources or whatever so that we can just move quickly through this rather than going through a number of steps that makes you know some manager feel like they're in control of things. Instead, we've got to figure out what is the most efficient way to run this place. So that can often be, because what I find, particularly with, uh, you know, serious professionals, it's not so much, you know, working a lot, but it's when they're working and figuring they're wasting their time or they're just running up against uh, frustrations. That's the kind of work that really discourages people and pushes them towards burnout. Yeah, I and I suppose that's true right across the board. It doesn't matter what you do, right? It doesn't matter what you do, no. And with some groups, what we've worked with, the, the main issue, you, you look at a work team and you find they're not getting along with each other. People feel that in their day-to-day interactions, they aren't respected, they aren't valued, they aren't being appreciated. And so we work with groups on how to improve that culture. So there is, in those little interactions that people have day-to-day, they're conveying appreciation and they're conveying that you know, we really do value one another's contributions. That's an important part of any kind of group. And one of the bigger things, big correlators with uh, burnout is the quality of social interactions people experience day to day. Yeah, I, I guess this is the always the billion dollar question. But if you feel like you're heading towards that burnout, if you see some of recognize some of those symptoms in yourself, what should you do? Well, um, I think... As an individual, I mean, I, that's where I say you start reflecting on, well, what is it about this job that is pushing me in that direction? And then you go into, well, is there anything I can do about that? You say, well, it really has to do with, um, you know, I, be, I feel like I'm being unfairly uh, treated when it comes to, uh, you know, assigning shifts that we're going to work. So be something specific as that and saying, well, okay, how can I solve that problem? If I can't solve that problem, and it really is pushing me towards burnout. When do I have to make a decision to uh, to leave this job? So that it can get to that extreme, if you say. But if you can catch it early on, you might be able to talk with your manager and find different ways of getting that solved so that you feel good about what happens on those important decisions about when and where you work. Yeah, tackle the little things before they become big things, right? Michael Leiter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you about this. 